If you could turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians, and as you're turning... I uh, just want to say a few words. My wife and I are happy to be back here at Canaan. Uh, it's great to see so many faces that are familiar and a number of new faces as well. And um, I have to say, some of these people I share a lot of wonderful memories with. And I am so thankful for the Ingrams and for what they mean to me. Um, he mentioned several of our interactions throughout the years. He came to my church in 2003, and uh, he was invited to preach the gospel to teenagers, and so teenagers how to be saved in our community. I don't know that he was invited to rip us to shreds as far as the teenagers of the church, but that he did, and that is something I needed. And um, God began to work in my heart the previous fall, but there as he came, my heart was tender. Uh, the soil of my heart was good soil, and the preaching that he preached uh, to our youth group was life-changing. And uh, little did I know, I was heading off to BCM, that he'd be there too. And uh, little did I know that I would be put on bus. And his job, apparently, was to tear the faces off of the bus workers. And um, the Lord used him. In fact, every time I heard that your pastor was coming to preach in chapel, I would just get right with God before he ever came. It was far better to be right with God already, but he'd always find something anyway. And uh, so I'm just so thankful for his ministry and his encouragement uh, to me. Um, I feel like there are very few men who can understand what it's like to do the kind of ministry that my wife and I do, and yet I know that your pastor understands. He's been in my shoes. He's done the kind of ministry uh, leading the war uh, that I and my family do, and uh, it's nice to have somebody uh, from a human standpoint who understands, and so um, I'm just so thankful uh, for your pastor, as I'm sure you are, and I'm thankful for this ministry. It's exciting to hear all that God is doing in your midst. It's exciting to see uh, and hear how God is uh, bringing you uh, into that secret place yourselves and how God is teaching you how to walk with Jesus. As much as that sounds cliche, as much as that might sound like, well, duh, what else would you do as a Christian? I, I think you realize it's not always intuitive to walk with Jesus. And, uh, and yet that is the the factor that makes the difference in our lives. We can understand theology, right? We can understand, even memorize the Word of God. But if our knowledge is not combined with a real and vibrant relationship with Jesus, well, we're the biggest bunch of hypocrites on planet Earth. And um, what I want to do here is I want to talk to you a little bit about the Corinthians here this evening, and not only about them, I'm not here to talk about them, I'm here to talk about you and myself here this evening, but the Corinthians obviously are a group of people that God put smack dab in the middle of his revelation uh, from, uh, from the throne of heaven to you and me here today, and the Corinthians are a group of people uh, that were just like you and me at one point in our lives. We were lost, hopeless, selfish hell-bound, and God in his love and mercy sent a preacher across their paths to declare the, the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And just like you and me, the Corinthians there one day on Paul's second missionary journey received that the offer of eternal life was good for them, and they chose to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were born again by the blood of Jesus Christ they came by the way of the cross as we heard sung about here this evening. And I'm so thankful that I could come to Jesus just like these people came to Jesus Christ. 
These Corinthians, though, that was the beginning of their journey, not the end. And the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half with these people teaching them how to walk with God. Teaching them that they were not saved so that they could live for themselves. They weren't saved so that they can get a, 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 a ticket out of hell. They were saved because God wanted a relationship with them and God had a mission for them to accomplish. And Paul, as he spent his time with them, he discipled them and taught them that they were saved to serve and to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet as Paul continued on in his journey, you know he didn't stick around. He didn't pastor the church. He appointed people to lead that church. But as Paul continued to journey, he began to receive word from the people in that church that though they were saved to serve, they weren't saved to live their lives for themselves. They were saved to live for others. They had some problems in their midst. They had problems, as you'll find in chapters 1 through 4. They were taking sides when they didn't need to be taking sides. There were factions that were forming in that church. They were picking up their pet issues, siding with people who sided with them. And Paul's estimation of it all was, your problem is pride. Chapters 5 through 7, he addresses another problem that became evident to him, and that was a problem of gross moral sin that had been taking place in their midst. There were people that were, uh, there was a, an individual particularly that had committed absolute lewd, disgusting moral sin in his own family, and God said, this must be dealt with. Don't you realize you'll judge angels one day, and if you're going to judge angels, you have a responsibility to deal with this matter in your own church but when we get to chapters 8 really I believe through chapters 14 I believe he gets to the heart of the matter and really the heart of the problem for the first Baptist church there in Corinth and the problem was a focus issue these individuals, uh, yeah, while they're taking sides and while they're indulging in moral licentiousness, they're also arguing about issues and saying, eh, there's nothing wrong with this, it's not that big of a deal, or, oh, I have a right to this. And they're arguing about all these different things, and as they are arguing, the world outside of their walls is dying and going to hell. How easy it is for us in our Christian life, in our religiosity, to focus on ourselves. Oh, we can understand theology. The Corinthians, they knew what real spirituality was. They understood how to walk in the Spirit and live the Spirit-filled life. These individuals, they knew how to exercise their spiritual gifts in the congregation. And yet, this congregation, as much as they understood in theory what it meant to walk with Jesus, how to walk with Him and live for Him. The fact is, because one factor was out of whack, it messed the whole thing up. I want you to look to chapter 13 with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to read about the missing ingredient. The missing ingredient in the church at Corinth. Listen, I just want to say this. Before we read this passage, many of you are on a journey. You're on a pilgrimage. You're learning. 
the reality of the Spirit-filled life as you must. You're learning that I can't do it, but God can. You're learning that it doesn't matter how good I live or look. If I'm not walking with Jesus, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. But here in this passage, we find a factor that unfortunately in many of our good, godly, conservative Baptist churches, unfortunately, this is not our pet issue. And because this issue is often not front and foremost in our minds and in our hearts, as much as it was the missing ingredient in the first Baptist church at Corinth, often this is also the missing ingredient in our hearts and in our churches as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can stand if you'd like here as we read this text here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 1 says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, profiteth me nothing. Love is important, so important, in fact, that Paul tells us that, no one could, that one could have everything but love and truly have nothing and be nothing. It is possible to surpass all others in the exercise of spiritual abilities and to miss love. It is possible to know all about what God is doing and to depend on God for great things and to miss love. Love. It is possible to sacrifice one's self and one's resources for the good of others and to miss love. To minister without love is to have sound without substance. To feel important but be nothing. To feel successful but to have it succeeded in nothing. To miss the essence of love is to miss the mark on everything else. The fact of the matter is, my friends, if we do not have love, we're good for nothing. You may be seated. Many years ago, I was uh, at home at a family gathering. It was Thanksgiving time. My family had come and uh, we were excited about offering our praises to the Lord for all the great things that he had done. But as I'm sure you do in your home, in my home growing up at Thanksgiving, there were a few traditions, right? One of which being the turkey. Right? So we had a big old turkey. You know, mom and grandma spent all day getting the turkey prepared. And again, I don't know how it is in your house, but one of the particular food items uh, that, that was delegated to my mother was the pumpkin pie. Now, my mom, she was a good cook. Uh, she was Italian, and I'm telling you, Italians are good cooks, right? Sister over there, we talked a little bit beforehand, and I was looking forward. Listen, I, I like the turkey. I like the stuffing. I like the whole spread, but what I, as a young child, probably five or six years old, was really looking forward to was dessert. 
And my mom, she'd worked all day. She'd worked on all kinds of other things. But one of the things she worked on was that pumpkin pie. And I remember, I don't know why they did this. Probably not a good idea to serve the kids first. But they cut the first slice and they put it on my plate and set it right in front of me. And they began to go around and uh, serve everybody else. And, and Pastor, I was not trained Minutemen yet. So I didn't wait for the hostess to sit down. And I remember before everyone else had gotten their pie, I took my fork. I forked a piece of that thing, shoved it in my mouth. And I said, man, this pie is disgusting. (laughs) Right in front of everybody else. Well, my dad gave me a very stern look. Everybody gave me a very stern look. And I remember sitting there thinking, what? It's disgusting. I don't know. Well, I don't know what they were thinking, but they got around to my dad. And my dad stuck his fork in it, put it in his mouth. And he turned to my wife and said, hon, Bobby's right. Well, my wife took a, or my, uh, my mom took a, took a bite of it and realized she had missed something very important. She missed the sugar. <clears throat> you know, pumpkin pie isn't very tasty without sugar. I don't even know who got the idea of taking a pumpkin and putting it into a pie. It's actually kind of weird when you think about it. It tastes amazing when it has all of the ingredients. And there that day, I learned an important lesson. I learned that you can do everything right, but in some instances, when you leave the sweetening ingredient out, it tastes disgusting. You know what, friends? I want to tell you here this evening, you can have it all down. But if you miss love, it tastes disgusting. Let me say this, you can use the right Bible and if you miss love, it'll taste disgusting. Did you know that? Did you know that you can have the most conservative standards of any church in town, but if you're missing love, it'll taste disgusting. You can know how to whip together a good sermon and how to tell people about Jesus, but if love is not involved, it tastes disgusting. You can understand the right theology, of how to walk with God. You can understand justification by faith in Christ alone. You can understand sanctification by faith in Christ alone. But if you do not have a love, it tastes disgusting. You can understand that you can't do it, but God can. And you can understand the reality of the Christ life, but if the product in your life is not love, it tastes disgusting. You can sacrifice for your family, for your church, for your community. You can bend over backwards and work your fingers to the bone for other people. But if it's not combined with love, it's disgusting. Why do I share this? Because God's been working in my heart about this. Um, number of you, we just come back from the Victory Conference, and the theme last week was extreme love. And we spent time dwelling and meditating on the love that Jesus Christ had for us, how that love is un. Conditional. Aren't you glad that God puts no conditions on his love for you? Aren't you glad that God didn't say to you, hey, I'll love you today if you do your devotions first thing in the morning? Aren't you glad that God didn't say, hey, I'll love you today if you keep out of pornography for another 24 hours? Aren't you glad that God put no conditions on his love for you? His love is unconditional. It's unbelievable when you really think about it. And God stopped at nothing. It is unstoppable. And yet, as, we, as I sat through the conference last week and I was meditating on all that God was doing in my heart, 
God put his finger on something in my heart. And I realized, you know what? We can understand the theory of God's love for us. We can even take that love through the sacrificial death of His Son. But if the love of God is not flowing out of us to other people, it stinks. It stinks. What I want to talk to you about here today is why God's love is so important. That's not the title of my message here this evening. But why is God's love so important? Why is love so important? As we saw here in this passage, the Corinthians, they were all about all kinds of things. The Corinthians had their own set of, of hobby horse issues, for lack of a better term. There were things they were passionate about there in their midst. And yet the one needful thing, the one thing that was going to sweeten the message for the masses was absent from their midst. They were so focused on themselves. Well, they were good at benefiting from God's love. But it never got past them to others. Listen, love is essential. Without love, we're nothing. Without love, you may have the greatest reputation here in this church. You may be the most spiritual member of the congregation. People might look to you for counsel, for, for advice. They may look to you as someone, as a shoulder to cry on. But listen, if the reality of God's love is not real and active in you and through you, you're nothing. You know, it's so interesting. I, I, I live in the realm of metrics, Okay, um, metrics, you know, numbers, that kind of a thing, because I do the war. And one of the things we do with the war is we go out and we invite young people. And as we go out, we, we you know, run out and about trying to find teenagers as they're coming home from school, trying to find them out in the, uh, in the parks and, you know, walking down the street. And, and every single time my team members come back, I have a question for them. And my question for them is this, is how'd you do? Early on, they don't really get what I mean. Okay, early on, they think, oh, it was good. And I look at them and I say, that's not what I'm talking about. How many names and numbers did you get, right? And uh, sometimes they'll look at me, man, it was a great time. I got 40 names and numbers. Or sometimes it wasn't so good, I got two. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just want you to think about this. I don't kick a guy off the team because he got two names and numbers, right? Just because he had a bad time out there. And I just want to say this here this evening God doesn't kick you off his team either when you fail. God doesn't say, you know what? You need to go sit in the penalty box for a little while before I start loving you again. God's love for us is unconditional. But I say that to say it's so easy for us to form our opinions of ourselves based on our performance. It's so easy to look, and for me, it's easy to look at the numbers and to say, well, I'm a successful preacher or evangelist because of this, that, or the other thing. It'd be easy for my team members to say, well, you know what, I'm a successful team member because I pulled in 150 names and numbers here this week. But I want you to know, God does not deal with us in terms of metrics. 
God does not deal with us and say, well, you know what? You're just a, you know, you're just a 20 souls saved in your lifetime, Christian. You're not quite as important to me in my kingdom as so-and-so who's a 10,000 souls saved kind of a person. No, Jesus died for the entire world. Not just those that are productive in his kingdom. And when it comes to us, and as we, we contend to live in the metrics of our lives, you know, hey, here's my metric. It's been, you know, a month since I indulged in pornography. Or it's been two hours since I blew up at my kids. That's probably more the metric for some of us, right? Or it's been, uh, you know, hey, listen, it's, it's, it's only been a month since I flew off the handle on the road at that idiot that wouldn't go when the light turned green. It's so easy for us to either accept our performance and evaluate ourselves because we're performing well or to beat ourselves up because we're not performing well. But I just want to say, in God's economy, in God's estimation of you and of me, He doesn't look at our metrics. He loves us unconditionally. And here's the thing, I think we know that. I don't think I've given news to anybody here this evening. I don't think this is a news flash. I don't think there's anybody here that said, you know what, I never really thought about that. I know you're with me. But here's the thing, often, often, we extend to others the same kind of love. Let's see, how should I say this? Often I find that we treat others with the same set of metrics that we treat ourselves with. We think, you know, I think I'll be accepted by God if X, Y, and Z. And we hold up this certain standard, whatever it might be, and we say, if I jump through this hoop, then God will accept me, God will love me. And though we know God loves us unconditionally, we think it'll be easier for him to love me if I jump through whatever this hoop right here might be. And when we hold up a hoop for ourselves, we're going to do it for other people too. You know, I, I, one thought that was very interesting to me here this past week that I, I want to chew on a little bit more is people that live in a fear-based relationship to God often lead people based on fear. Husbands, fathers, how do you lead your home? Do you whip your kids into submission um, by holding them to... Uh, unreasonable standards, do you try to lead your home with that authoritarian iron fist? Do you get angry when your kids don't measure up to whatever it is you think they're supposed to be measuring up? I've got news for you, friend. You may not understand it. You may not necessarily agree with it, but I bet that's probably how you think God is when it comes to you and him. You know, here's the thing. I believe that many of us, as much as we would say amen theologically to the fact that God loves us unconditionally, if our love, the kind of love that we give to others is any indication, I don't think we believe it as much as we think we do. You know, I, again, I, I'm not speaking, I feel like the most, the least qualified person to talk about this. Because listen, I love my kids, but they can be really annoying sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Your kids can too. I'm not, I'm not dissing my kids. I saw some people be like, he did not just say that. Listen, it's part of being a kid. 
And you know, I'll be honest with you, just by way of testimony, last week I brought two of my children, David and Eva, with me uh, to the Extreme Love Conference. And I thought, you know what, hey, you know what? We're going to run this thing like a tight ship. I mean, this is going to be great. We had gotten a condo somewhere, and, uh, you know, the kids were going to, they were going to follow dad's process just so, right? We are going to get out every day early, and there were going to be no issues. I'm going to show my wife how it's done, right? And, um, and so at the beginning, I started saying, all right, listen, when you're here with daddy, here's how things are going to work. Here's how you're going to do it in the morning. You know, I laid out the process for him. Here are things we're not going to do. Here are things we are going to do. And, and do you think my kids did it perfectly? David, did you guys do it perfectly? No, no, he didn't. And I hate to say it. There were a couple times I got pretty upset at my kids. There were a couple times I got pretty mad, just being honest with you. And um, there was a, a message that was preached um, by Brother Rabin. And he preached about the fact that our kids need acceptance. Our kids need uh, appreciation. Our kids need affection. It was one of those sermons I knew I needed to be in on because I knew I needed to be torn up about this. You know what I'm saying? And um, in fact, it's funny. I almost didn't end up in it because some, uh, some college sophomore girl stole my seat. Yeah, I had my, I had my Bible laid out and uh, I came in because I was like, I need this session. I look and there's this blonde-haired sophomore college girl. And she was like, oh, I can move. And I didn't want to be an ogre. So I'm like, no, you know, you're fine. And I went and sat in the sound booth and they're doing all this stuff with a live stream and everything. And I'm realizing I'm not going to be able to pay attention. This is too important of a session. And so I went back and I said, could you scoot over? I really need to be here. But you know what? During that session, God tore me to shreds. Because as much as I know that God accepts me, in spite of all of my warts, and all of my shortcomings, as much as I know that God appreciates me, and God loves me, I was not extending that to my children. Uh, it was one of those invitations where, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to wait for him to say, come on up. I was up at the front. I was weeping, weeping, weeping over my lack of, of love. Listen, I love my kids. I do. I, I pulled my kids aside later on in the morning. Uh, they, had, they were involved in our academy when we're home, and so we had babysitters, right, all week. And um, I pulled David aside, and I could hardly get out the words. I told David, I said, David, Daddy loves you. And whether you get wander off and get lost in the lobby, one of the things we talked about, or whether you lose your little list of all the different outfits you're supposed to wear this week, or whether you get distracted in the morning from your devotions, or whether you just start jabbering when daddy's trying to talk to some adults, whether you do that or not, daddy accepts you. Amen. And daddy's so glad you're here with me. I had a similar conversation with Eva. And you know, during those moments, you know, it's funny how God can take an absolute failure, like a moment of failure and use it, to teach us about his love. I learned so much in those moments about how much God loved me. 
You know, why am I saying this? Because here's the thing. When we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we realize that if we don't have this, we're a miserable failure. But here's the thing. God wants to teach you something through it. God wants to teach all of us something through it. If you could flip over with me to the book of Romans chapter 5 here briefly. Romans chapter 5. I want to point out something here. Um, I found myself many times asking the question, okay, so I am lacking in love towards so-and-so or in this situation in my life. I can't seem to love. How do I exhibit the love that God expects? How can that be? Have you ever found yourself there? Have you ever found yourself in the morning on Sunday morning as you're getting ready to go to church knowing you ought to be loving your kids and not licking them? Have you ever found yourself knowing, listen, I ought to be patient and kind and loving here this morning and not getting mad because they're getting distracted by this, that, or the other thing and you find yourself saying, oh, wretched man that I am, right? Or woman that I am. Well, I, I, listen, there is so much that I could say here. So much. And yet I think often we can oversimplify it a little bit. Listen, one verse perhaps your mind is going to is this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? And I will say this, that is an absolute key factor in this. The fact of the matter is the love exemplified in 1 Corinthians 13 is something that's alien to you. It's not that some people's personalities are more prone to it than others. It's not that certain people are good at it and other people stink at it. It's, it's that it is something that is completely impossible for you to do without the enablement of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the love of 1 Corinthians 13 isn't human love at all. It is God's love in you and through you. And the only pathway to uh, beaming God's love from heaven and through you to your family and to your co-workers is through listening to the Spirit of God, surrendering completely to Him and relying on Him to love through you. Amen. However, often we feel hopeless in that endeavor. In Romans chapter 5, he says here, he's talking about the results of justification. This is uh, the, the bundle that came with forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He says in verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Aren't you glad that you don't have to work up peace? Aren't you glad peace came with the bundle of salvation? He says through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. We heard about that this morning, wherein we stand and rejoice in what? What's that next word? Hope. I want to say this here, friends. Regardless of how, how much you have lacked God's love in your life, there is hope. And hope is bundled into your salvation. Where am I going with this? He says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You have hope for the distant future. There's going to come a day when God's going to glorify you. The absence of sin is going to be completely divorced from your person and you're going to be free to love like no one's ever been free to love before. But I want you to know the hope of this verse is not just hope for the day of glory. It is hope for today. He says, and not only so, in other words, not just that far off distant hope of glory, he says, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience and experience hope. 
I wish I had time to fully unpack this progression. I do not have time except to say this. Listen, every time your kids annoy you, it's a miracle in the making. Every time that you get cut off on the highway, it's a potential miracle in the making. Every time your wife doesn't give you what you think you ought to have, husbands, it's a potential miracle in the making. Every time you find yourself twisted up, angry, frustrated, ready to bop somebody on the head, I want you to know it's a potential miracle in the making. All God wants you to do is stick with Him. Stick with Him. Keep close to Him. But listen, there's a factor that I find often we do not think of when it comes to this matter of hope right now. And here's what he says in verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. One commentator said this, the confidence we have for the day of judgment is not based only on our intellectual recognition of the fact of God's love or even only on the demonstration of God's love on the cross, but also on the inner subjective certainty that God does love us. The verb pour out connotes an abundant, extravagant effusion. He does not say given, but shed abroad in our hearts. So showing the profusion of it, Paul uses the same verb to depict the pouring out of God's spirit. Paul is asserting two things at once, that God's love has been poured into our hearts in the past and that that love is now within us. And this love is conveyed to our sensations by the Holy Ghost. And it is this internal, subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love expressed and made vital in real concrete actions on our behalf that gives to us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us. Why do I bring this up? Because sometimes we know God loves us but we don't feel it. We know God loves us, but we just don't think he really likes us. <laughs> I remember years ago, I was a student at Bible college, and um, often happens uh, to Bible college students, they go home and they hurt their conscience about some things, and that happened to me. And I remember I came back, and God worked in my heart through the preaching and the opening revival of that next semester, and I remember, though, even though God had worked in my heart and even though I had dealt with some things in my life, I remember feeling like a complete abysmal failure. You ever been there? And I remember I walked into our auditorium. I remember the lights were off, just the light coming, what came into the auditorium. The only light was from the lobby. And I remember I sat down in a pew and I pulled out a hymn book. And I remember I opened up that hymn book uh, to, to a hymn, I believe it was... Uh, just as I am, I could be wrong, I don't remember the exact hymn, but I remember as I sat there and I just read the words aloud. I remember, I didn't just know God loved me, I felt it. Amen. God so overwhelmed me with the reality of I, that, that he loved me that it came out my eyes, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I know, listen, you might be sitting here thinking, well, it must be nice to have an emotional personality. No, I'm not talking about human emotion. I'm talking about spiritual reality. 
If you're sitting here and you have absolutely no idea what in the world I'm talking about when I just gave that little story about myself and I could give many other stories like that where I've been on a walk, pardon, and uh, quoting the verse, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. There have been so many times in the midst of my own tribulation and need, in the midst of my own failure, in the midst of my own utter awareness that I do not deserve God's love and yet God communicates to my sensations the fact that he loves me anyway and it brought me to tears. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, no wonder you have problems loving anybody. You see, God works with us. Listen, the Christian life, um, I, I'd encourage you to get a chance to listen to Doc Flanders' session. It was short, but it was sweet. There's a progression of Christian love in the Christian life. God initiated that love through Jesus Christ, but we have a choice on whether we're going to receive it, and we can't give what we haven't received. And I'm not just talking about eternal life through Jesus Christ, and I believe this passage right here is not just talking about some emotional experience that would be nice for some Christians. I I believe that it is this pouring out of God's love to our hearts, that emotional, subjective experience is what we must receive in order to love like 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Amen. Honestly, it'll change the way you think about your devotion time in the morning. I'm not just here to gain more Bible knowledge. I'm here because I need to experience God's love today. Amen. It'll change the way you think about the services. I'm not just here to hear some guy stand up and talk about the Bible. I am here to experience the love of Jesus Christ in my heart. I'm telling you, as Andrea was singing here tonight, God was working in my heart and overwhelming me with his love for me. Here's the thing, without love, if we, don't, if we have not received it, we can't give it. And my point here this evening is, listen, you can excel in every other area of your life. But if you do not, on a regular basis, experience God's love and give it with others, you're nothing. I grew up in a, a church that I'm thankful for. I've grown in my thankfulness for it over the years. Um, the church that I grew up in, I would say, was known for being pretty conservative. If it wasn't known at all. Um, you could argue whether it was known for love. The people loved me so much. And in fact, I'm growing so much in, in that. I grew up out in New Jersey, which is not known as a place of love, but that's another point. I struggled a lot as a teenager for a lot of different reasons. And I'm not blaming anyone for my own sin. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, God did a, a big work in my heart through a number of preachers, your pastor being one of them. But if I could point to one person, one person that made the biggest difference in my life, be my stepmom. Uh, my mom died when I was 12. My adopted mother, again, long story, I can't go into it now. And my dad got remarried when I was 16, and she came in and saw all kinds of issues in my life and in my heart. And she talked to dad about them, but she didn't necessarily come out swinging, at least not at the start. And, um, but she began to pray for me. And um, 
I remember uh, coming into my senior year of high school, <clears throat> she, uh, she sat me down on the couch once and she said, you know, uh, at that point I was homeschooled, I really wanted to go to a Christian school, and again, I don't have time to fully develop everything about this story, but she, in essence, volunteered to drive me an hour each way to get me into a good Christian school. She said she could work a job she didn't need to work to pay for my school bill. And my mom, uh, my stepmom again, she's my mom, she spent two hours with me every day in the car. I had my permit. Our lives flashed before our eyes several times along the way. We bonded. We grew so close. And it wasn't necessarily anything that she said. It wasn't even necessarily the fact that she had sacrificed. And even though she'd only been in my life for two years or so at this point, one or two years, the love that she showed me softened my heart. And it was in the context of her love for me, my senior year, that God called me to preach, that started the process of me getting thoroughly right with God. It's what prepared my heart so when your pastor came, I could completely unload the truck. It is because of her love for me that I am in the ministry here today and thousands of young people have come to Jesus Christ. You know, she could have just come in and pointed out everything wrong with me. But she loved me. She loved me. And God did the pointing out. <clears throat> you know, I just want to challenge you here this evening. You may have it all down. You may have it all down, but if you're missing love, you don't have it down as well as you think you do, Pastor. Yeah.